We're looking at the passage in the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe in the resurrection of the body, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, beginning at verse 35, if you want to turn there. It's very interesting that we have, uh, all the way back 500 years ago, decided in the English language that we didn't like the way the Apostle Creed read at that time, and so we decided we would polish it up. And so initially, the Apostles' Creed read, I believe in the resurrection of the flesh. Now, if you are a part of the Anglican community, you would see in their baptismal formula for membership, one of the things that they ask in that uh, uh, part of the church is people come to faith and profess their faith, they ask them, do they affirm the parts of the Apostles' Creed? So where we have our five membership questions, this is a part of what the Anglican Church has used historically, the Apostles' Creed, and even to this day where it's used in that manner, they continue to use the word flesh. I believe in the resurrection of the flesh. And so that's just an oddity in the way we deal with this in the past, the way it was initially written, the way we deal with it in the present. Now, let me read from 1 Corinthians 15. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but the bare kernel perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is of the same kind. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. 
Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, when we talk theologically about the nature of man, there's basically two common theories. One that looks at man as being made of two pieces, body and soul. Fancy word, bipartite, two parts. Now, there's another perspective that is very common in evangelical Christianity, and it's called tripartite theory. And that view is that man is composed of a body, a soul, and a spirit. Now, basically, I think the majority report is that we understand the spirit and the soul of speaking of the same thing in two different ways, so that man is basically made up body and soul. And so when we look at this passage of Scripture, we want to come to an idea when we talk about the resurrection of what is our personal end. Now, the theological word for that is eschatology. What is the eschatology of a Christian person? That's what we're talking about today. And we talk about that we believe at the death of a Christian that the man's soul is made immediately perfect in holiness and does immediately pass into the presence of the Lord in heaven, but his body, and then there's a parenthetical phrase in there, being still united to Christ. The, the believer's body remains in the grave until the resurrection. Now, at the resurrection, we say, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed at the end of the age. So when Christ is revealed, then Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 4, then we're going to be revealed with him in glory. Our soul is going to be reunited with our body. And then we are going to have a body that is, has a glorified state. It's fit for eternity, and it's fit for a kind of life that the scriptures refer to over and over again as eternal life. Our life is temporary. This life is eternal. This body for this life and that body for eternal life. So our bodies that we possess and that we are living in are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So that Paul says about this present body that this present body, if we're a believer, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that we're called upon as Christian people to glorify God in our bodies. That's the call upon us, that we would understand that the body that we possess is to be maintained by us in a Christian fashion so that we live uh, to present our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice in this life, 
We are to discipline our bodies and hold them in check in this life. And we are even to put to death the sins of the body in this life. And in short, we can say that the Christian life for the Christian person is life in the body that God has given us, but that eternal life will be of an entirely different kind, and it will be in a body that is prepared for that, that is eternal, and that is glorified. Now, how do we begin to think about this? What does it mean? I want you to think of the two earliest appearances that we have of Jesus after his resurrection, because I think that these two appearances help to inform us to a great extent on what we should think about, about ourselves, our present body, and the body that we will possess after this resurrection takes place. And so you see that the earliest appearance is the appearance of Jesus to Mary, and then the next one that's recorded Uh, that we have details of is the appearance of Jesus to the two men that are, we're told, are walking from Jerusalem to the little town on the outskirts of Jerusalem called Emmaus. Now, what we have in common in these two appearances is the immediate unrecognizableness of Jesus by these people. So Mary, who has been somebody that has been absolutely devoted to Jesus uh, and knowing Jesus and probably knowing, if we could say it this way, his ins and outs, the way he dealt with life and did things. Initially, when she is at the tomb and she's looking in and weeping and she hears this question, woman, who are you seeking who are you looking for? She turns around and she thinks it's a gardener. And so she begins to talk to her, Jesus, as if he's the gardener and says, you know, if you have taken him somewhere and laid him somewhere, um, please tell me and I will get his body and I'll take care of it. I'll, I'll do whatever's necessary to take care of it. You remember what happened next? You remember the next thing that takes place? What does Jesus do? No. He calls her name. Mary. Now, once that happened, what happens next? Well, Mary has got her arms wrapped around Jesus' ankles like this as if you got away once, you ain't getting away again. Now, something to be seen right here in what just took place. Now, follow it with the two men on the road to Emmaus. They're sad, similar to Mary. They're discussing with one another that they thought that this Jesus was something that they projected, that he was going to be the Messiah, Redeemer of Israel, and the way they thought about it. 
And Jesus comes up and says, what are you so sad about? And they begin to talk about all this, and this conversation goes on for some time, and finally they come to Emmaus, and they ask Jesus to stay with them. He consents. They sit down to eat some food, and what happens then? Well, it says, all of a sudden, as Jesus was breaking the bread, they recognized him. And he vanished. I just want you to think on that for a minute. How was Jesus recognized? And he was recognized through the vehicle, first of all, of his body, and the way he talked to Mary. Then he was recognized by the men on the road to Emmaus by the actions of his body just in the way he broke the bread. That's how they recognized him. Now, that should speak to us to a great extent. We should not become fanciful with this, but it is there to inform us. Mary recognized Jesus because it was Jesus who called her name, in the exact same way he'd probably called her name countless times before. The road to Emmaus travelers recognized Jesus when they saw him doing something that they had probably seen him do many times before, being the host at a meal and doing what he normally did the way he normally did it. And it was as that took place that they saw that this was Jesus who was in front of them. So what's this mean for us? Well, what it means to me and what it should mean to you is, like it or not, I kind of like it myself. But I'm not all that egotistical, but I kind of like the stuff I do. I kind of have a big time wherever I go. My wife will say, hope you have a good time. And I'll say, I'm going to be there. <laughs> That's the way I think of it. I hope you think about your life that way. That's what's going to be there. How are you most known? Now, you know, Today, in the era in which we live, we exchange letters. Sometimes we exchange letters with people we've never met before. Sometimes we exchange emails with people we've never met before. Sometimes we talk on the phone with people we've never seen before. And then the time will come when we'll get face-to-face, -face, and what's the phrase we tend to say? It's good to finally to be able to do what? Put the face with a name. And it's only as we see the face and the, the things that we've known that we begin to put together that this is a real person. And we, 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 we see when we see the person, it's like our knowledge of that person takes a giant leap. We know, we know them. We know more about them. Um, I walk over on Ridge Avenue, 
And Sunday afternoon, I was walking over there, and here came husband and wife from our church walking. And for a few minutes, they're actually holding hands. Husbands, that's not a bad thing to do with your wife when you're walking. So that's just the wives. You can pay me later for that. But it's the good thing. And the two of them are walking, holding hands. And I says, y'all been dating long? And they looked up, and they kind of looked. And they oh, it's John. <laughs> they didn't recognize me. Now, you're used to seeing me, and they're used to seeing me dress something like this. But, you know, I had on a pair of long casual pants, but I had a long sleeve T-shirt on, a baseball cap and my big dark sunglasses on, and they didn't recognize me. That happens all the time over there. Church members will see me until they get right up on, they won't recognize me. I kind of like that too. <laughs> Told them if they recognize me too quick, I might probably need to change disguises or change neighborhoods or something. But people that have known me for any length of time hardly ever fail to recognize me even at a distance because of the way I walk. Interesting. They recognize me by the way I walk. In the fourth grade, a kid and I were wrestling on the school steps. He pushed me off. I went down about four feet to the ground, and he landed on me, and when I stood up, I fell down. Well, I thought, well, that never happened again before, so I stood up, and as soon as I stood up, I fell down. I says, there's something wrong here. I had a broken toe. Well, when they put the cast on and all that kind of stuff, and it was all over, I never knew any difference, but my body was different. Something was broke, and it affected the way I walked. The sixth grade, my mother got an unhappy phone call from, Dr. from Mr. Snyder, the sixth grade teacher. Ms. Kinzer, would you come down here? I want to talk to you about John. Now, that was not an uncommon call. <laughs> it didn't begin in the sixth grade either. But when she showed up there, she thought, what? She was a church secretary. I'm sure she says, what Jesus has he done now? And Mr. Snyder said to him, I'm concerned about John. She, my mom says, oh, yeah, what for? He walks funny. My mother did not think that was funny at all. You brought me all the way down here to tell me my son walks funny? But you see, that teacher had seen something. When I hit the Marine Corps... And I got to Paris Island, I was taller than almost everybody in the platoon. In the Marine Corps, they put the tallest people in the front of each file, and it gets shorter till you get to the end. And the shortest people are at the end of each file. But as I was put there, I only stayed there about four or five days before they put me second in, in the middle. Why? You know what the drill instructor said? You walk funny. <laughs> now that's part of people knowing me. 
Now, I'm trying to convey to you in all seriousness, you have got whatever you want to call it. You might want to call it a tick. Some of you have got ticks. If you've got questions about that, I'll inform you. Um, do you ever notice how sometimes that there are certain people that we know that are really good in mimicking other people? And, and the reason that we think that they're funny is because they can do it. One day, I was in a public grocery store, and I saw a certain woman who's burying her head. <laughs> and as I walked up to her, she was picking something up and looking at it, and she shook her head, and she went like that. And I said, looks like the horse has finally got to you. <laughs> Do people do things like this? Well, it's who we are. What I'm trying to make a case for is when we're raised from the dead, it's not going to be something or someone else. You're going to know one another, and you're going to recognize one another, and one of the key ways that we're going to recognize one another is because the things that we do are more than likely the things that we're going to continue to do. Who is being raised from the dead? We are. We are. Now, it's incredibly important that we think about this. This body raised from the dead. It's got a lot of implications. Dallas Willard, who's brother-in-law is a member of our church. Dallas passed away about a year or so ago. He once wrote a statement something like this. This isn't pleasant. He said, you know, by the time people are 40, most people have the face they deserve. Process that. Just think about it. By the time a person's 40, they have the face they deserve. We need to, we need to consider who we are now. Bob Sproul is the father of R.C. Sproul. Now, Mr. and Mrs. Sproul had a daughter and a son. The son is R.C. Sproul, the theologian. The daughter married a PCA pastor. Voorhees is her married name. Bob died. The service was in the sanctuary of the Presbyterian Church. The pastor is making some comments about Bob. The service has gone on for some time. Mrs. Sproul has done really well through the service of worship. This pastor says, I always knew when Bob Sproul was in the church. There was just a little pitter-pattery way that he walked, and you always knew well, it was over for the widow at that moment. As soon 
is this pastor said something that was that deeply personal about Bob, she couldn't contain herself. Bob was gone, and so was that. What do we miss when people are taken away from us? That's what we miss. To a great extent, that's what's missing. And it's made their life, and it's made their life so attached to our life. Very quickly, that pastor recovered the situation, and he looked down at her and said, Mrs. Sproul, it will all be restored. It will all be restored. Do you see how accurate that man's theology was? That's what's going to be restored. Now, what this is talking about is us as a person. What is our wit? What is our interest? What is our our intensity? What are our mannerisms? What is it that makes us us? Who are we? We've been made and shaped by God. And we've been made and shaped by God in this life. And as we think about the life to come, then we should think that it's this life that is to be restored. And it's going to be made to complement all the other lives of all the other people that we've connected with in our Christian experiences. They're all going to be there. And all of that's going to be there as well. It'll be glorified. Paul talks about this in this passage. In verses 35 through 41, he illustrates. This isn't isn't to be taken as the theology of what we're to believe. It's an illustration of what we're to believe. He tells us that our bodies compare with other types of bodies, and that as we look at the things in the natural order, that those things are there to illustrate to us, to open our eyes, to see what is in this order, to understand what it means for us as living people. The first thing that we see that he introduces into this passage is, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to liken our lives to seed. This body of ours is like a seed. And so if you plant a rose seed, do you think you're going to get celery? Is that what you're anticipating? If you wanted celery, you would plant celery. So what Paul's saying is, you see what you've got? It's going to be like this. So then he goes on and he tells us that the seed first has to decay. He's talking about that what is here has to die. But what's going to come up is going to be comparable to what has died. This gives way to that. 
So then he goes on in verse 38, and he talks about all of this as being of God's design. God's ordered things this way. And then he goes into a various types of different living things. And he says, you know, things are different. Men are not beasts or animals. Uh, birds are one thing, fish are another thing. Now he's just talking. There are all kinds of bodies. And then there's the order, and there's a temporal body for the current order. And then there's a heavenly body that is meant for the eternal order. And that's what he's talking about here, that we would see this. And again, that these are illustrations. They're not to be made into a theology. In this illustration, he talks about the glory of things that are temporal. There are glories in these things that are temporal. You remember we talk about the life of Moses and we talk about the life of Elijah, but there they show up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They show up, but when they show up, wow, because they're with Jesus, everything has become resplendent. And they have possessed, in a picture form, the type of final bodies that they're going to possess. So there is the glory of the one, but there is the amplified glory of what it's going to be like at the end. There's the comparison, again, between sun and moon and stars and various stars. One body is perishable. The future is imperishable. One is sown in dishonor. In other words, there's going to be decay. It's going to be raised in glory. One is in weakness. The other's in power. The one is a natural. The other is spiritual. One is of Adam. One is of Christ. One is of the earth. One is of heaven. The one gives way that the new may come in its place. Then he talks about how this will all come to bear. Y'all ever listen to all this stuff about evolution and you look at the geology of the earth and you say how long all this took to get the way it's shown in all these geological formations? Y'all heard that kind of stuff? Have you ever heard people analyze Mount St. Helens and all that ground after that earthquake and that one event? What was demonstrated that took place on Mount St. Helens and immediately thereafter took hours. And it looks like it took millions of years. And we're told that this resurrection is going to be like something that happened at Mount St. Helens. It's going to be an instant. And it's going to be an instant of renewal in which the things that have declined are going to come to life again in amazing power and order. And this is all called in verse 50 and following a victory. There's two things to take away from this for today. The main thing to take away today is faith in Christ and we live. It's sad to meet someone like I met yesterday declining in a nursing home and she doesn't know Jesus and she's incredibly educated and her viewpoint of Jesus is not very good and she's never been churched. 
Now you can pray for me as I try and witness to that lady. That is a tragedy. We need to live knowing that we're going to live forever. But the other thing that we're going to need to do, we need to think about the way we take care of the body that God's given us here right now. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we should do everything that we can to treat it with the utmost dignity and respect. It is a gift and a stewardship and an obligation, and it's God's tool. It's God's tool that he uses to connect us with other people, to connect those other people to him. Our body is not our own. It's been bought with a price. We're to glorify God with our body. That's what he's talking about here. Let's pray. Now, Father, that we can understand these things only in part, but if in part we've moved ahead in what we understand, would you bless this in us that we could be good witnesses to other people and that we could live for your honor and glory and praise. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.